You're listening to the Vanu Podcast, the podcast making you invulnerable to the coercion of the state and the servile society. Visit our website for free resources to aid you in your pursuit of self-liberation, old Vanu publications, podcasts, guest articles, and much more. Go to VanuPodcast.com. And now, your hosts, Shane and Jason. Welcome to the Vanu Podcast, the podcast making you invulnerable to the coercion of the state and the servile society. Uh, I'm your host, Shane, coming to you from the homestead, uh, my Vanu home base uh, here in southern Illinois. Uh, this podcast, everything you can find on the website, is covered by BIPCONT, no government license, still has reuse and modification to anyone except for governments and the bludgies thereof. Uh, learn more by visiting BIPCOT.org. So this is a live stream, of course, so uh, please, uh, so feel free to uh, leave any questions or comments uh, in the live chat. Uh, I will be uh, jumping up there uh, and uh, keeping tabs on that. So, uh, yeah, feel free to drop any uh, questions or comments for me or uh, my special guest today. But before I bring in uh, my special guest this afternoon, I do have a couple quick announcements. Uh, first off, until January 1st, uh, we are running a 50% off special for our proofreading and editing services. We're at Liberty Undertake Publications. Uh, so if you're an author and have a manuscript you've been uh, wanting, wanting to get a professional, a professional set of eyes on, uh, we'd love to help. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a journalist and want another set of eyes on your articles, uh, we can help with that too. Uh, just email me, shane at libertyunderattack.com, or visit libertyunderattack.com forward slash publish for more information or to schedule a strategy call. You can also check out all of our books at libertyunderattack.com. Got a dozen or so out right now, uh, many of them on Vanu, uh, all of them, uh, if I remember correctly, on self-liberation. So yeah, if you dig the content of this podcast, you'll love our publications. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to get a few free books uh, to sample to sample what we have to offer, uh, just visit libertyunderattack.com and sign up for LUA Publications email updates. So yeah, on today's, uh, today's 60, uh, 65th episode of the Vanu Podcast, I'm joined by Frank Braun, uh, another cypherpunk crypto-anarchist uh, out of Berlin. Uh, he is the host of the Cypherpunk Bitstream Podcast, our friend Smuggler, and he is uh, involved with at least two projects that we'll talk about today, uh, Codechain and Scritcash. Uh, we'll learn about uh, what he's been working on and uh, see where the conversation goes. So, well, uh, so Frank, welcome to the uh, Vanu Podcast, sir. Uh, how are you doing today? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your cast. So yeah, Frank. Uh, for, uh, so I guess we'll, uh, we'll we'll start with this if it's if that's all right. Why don't you start uh, with an introduction? Uh, who are you, and uh, what do you do? Well, I'm. A, I would call myself like a cryptanarchist. I'm a software developer by trade, and I'm, yeah, interested in all things how how we can create more liberty in our lifetime. Very good, very good. Yeah. So, uh, so obviously, I mean, I mean, I mentioned Code Chain and Script Cash. Uh, those are some projects that you're working on. So, you, so you're a coder, a developer. Then, uh, what what are your specialties? Uh, um, programming languages, uh, um, types of software, etc. Could, could you speak a little bit to uh, um, to to your work? Um, yeah, mostly software developer. I've I did a lot of C programming for yeah, probably twenty years, and then moved into Go, Go programming language. Um, maybe five years ago and that's what we've been using mostly for all our projects because it's uh, it turned out to be much more productive 
Okay. Okay. Very interesting. So, so goes what you've been what you've been using then. I guess uh, is there. I, I'm not. I'm not uh, a coder or anything myself, but I know um, just from from some of the people that were were liking and re- retweeting this, they might be they might be interested and in, in, uh, uh, and and learning more. But uh, so so yeah, Go. Uh, um, why, why do you prefer Go over over some other uh, languages? Yeah, I think it's it's very productive. I mean, you you don't really have any memory problems. The uh... Um, it has it has memory collection. It is um, has a good parallelization. It's just overall way more productive than C. Okay, it's, it's really built for programming in the large, and it has a lot of um, a lot of especially for our um, interests. It has a lot of crypto primitives already built in, so you have very good implementations for all the different uh, cryptographic primitives you need to implement things like CodeChain or Squid. Okay. Very cool, very cool. So, so Frank, I know I'm, I know I'm curious. I'm sure some some others are as well. How did you find yourself in the in the realm of crypto anarchy? I mean, what was uh, what was your path here? I'm I'm a bit of a late starter. I think I um, I started guessing getting interested in libertarianism maybe 15 years ago or so. Um, I, I mean, I started computer science. I was always interested in. Um, in economics but i wasn't really like i didn't really like some things like that i had to go to like that there's conscription in germany or there was at the time and that i was forced to go to school so i had like these um feelings that i thought this is not not right but i couldn't like put a name to it i didn't have any philosophy and around 15 years ago then i um i stumbled upon ayn rand as many do and that kind of started for me the journey and uh, fell in the rabbit hole. And then only later I, I brought this together with basically my background in computer science and how do we get to a world with more liberty. I, then I brought this together with crypto anarchy. To be more precise, I met Smuggler by accident and he kind of hooked me, got me hooked on crypto anarchy. And then for me, it kind of came together as a strategy how we can achieve more freedom in our life. And also something where I could use my skills. I was also interested in seasteading, but I couldn't really see myself contributing that much because I wasn't a civil engineer and didn't have twenty million to build a floating platform. Right, right. Okay, that's 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 interesting. So, um, so you're, you're into uh, uh, so you're interested in seasteading then? Uh, yeah, that's that's been uh, my, my one of my one of my dreams, dream lifestyles, I guess, is uh, living on a sailboat. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm certainly interested in the prospects of uh, of seasteading as well. I think it's uh, one one step in the in the direction of space steading. And uh, you know, obviously, I don't think that's really, really going to happen in our lifetime. But I think uh, you know, when uh, you know the, the the crypto anarchists of the future, you know, can make their own uh, their own space shuttles and you know take off. <laughs> I mean, I think it'll be uh, it'll be pretty impossible for for governments to uh, to uh, uh, to rule out in outer space. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that I think that's that's a good strategy to try to build these alternatives uh, somewhere, you know, be it on the sea, be it on, in space or also on land. I mean, that's what the uh, second realm is about, building building seasteads on land. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, building, uh, you know, building pockets of freedom and, and, you know, physical space and time. So, so yeah, so you're in, uh, you're in, you're in Berlin too, um, there with, uh, with Smuggler, I guess, um, he, uh, I guess it would have been the last time he was on, not the last time, but the time, the, the first time he was on, uh, he talked a little bit about, uh, the, the temporary autonomous zone, um, that's, uh, that's, uh, that, uh, 
I guess uh, is, is functioning. Uh, so do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about uh, I guess a little bit about uh, about the about the TAS kind of crypto anarchy in Berlin? Uh, um, what you guys got going on there? Sure. I mean, I don't know if the listeners are familiar with the concept of the second realm. Maybe shortly I can introduce it. So sure. it's about um, building like these parallel uh, spaces in the physical realm. And we've been talking about this for a long time. And then uh, we had this idea that we want to build such a parallel space or so-called temporary autonomous zone out of shipping containers. Um, the main reason was that if you ever have to change places, then with shipping containers, you can do that easily without losing your um, your property. And so, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, we started off with the first uh, two shipping containers and rented some space and put them there. And then over time, um, got more containers, got more people involved. And now, now, like for the last year or so, it's been it's been growing more quickly. And yeah, that's how we try to build our alternative space. Right. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 incredible. Um, that's incredible. And uh, um, so, so and I don't know how I don't know if you've looked into into Vanu at all, but um, the the, uh, the I guess the the founder of the Freedom Strategy, Vanu, um, that was one thing that he recommended back in, in I guess the late nineteen sixties was um, he was a big proponent of mobility. That uh, mobility is what uh, is makes you uh, is, is is mobility. Uh, I guess mobile lifestyles make one more invulnerable to the coercion of the state. And then also too, as as you kind of said, with uh, you know the state being a threat. Obviously, uh, you know there's there's risk of confiscation. So if if you have highly mobile capital, then that risk of confis- confiscation uh, goes down some. Exactly, and and then it's just a matter of what do you optimize for. I mean, some people are really into RVs, and I think RVs are a good thing, but they're optimized for moving them a lot. So it, it's kind of expensive to um, maintain this movability of an RV. When you, I mean, it, it would be too expensive if it's, it's in one place most of the time, and um, and you cannot really stack. So that's why we went for containers, which are more. They're still optimized for being moved around, but you can also have them in one place for a long time, stack them, and it's very cheap compared right. to an RV fleet. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think that's, I think that's, uh, that's totally fair. I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, uh, van nomadism too, whether it's in an RV or, uh, in a car or in a, in a work van, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's cer- certainly good points. Um, uh, you know, there's, uh, especially when it comes to, um, I don't know. A lot of people, a lot of people like some sort of stability, right? Um, so uh, obviously, mobility is important, um, which is why that, you, which is why one reason you chose the shipping containers. Um, but you also want some sort of semblance of, of stability, right? Um, at least some people do. Um, at least uh, you want some sort of semblance of, uh, of, of semi permanence, right? Exactly. In our case, that's what we what we optimized for. So I mean, I, I totally understand that if you want to move more often than an RV, it might be the better choice, or it's probably the better choice. But uh, in our case, um, containers were the better choice, I think. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So I guess let's go ahead and get into into the the first the first topic of discussion here, and that is uh, is Scrit Cash. 
Well, I guess before we before we get to script cash, I, I am curious because uh, uh, you and you and Smuggler, uh, um, obviously, you know, you're you're cypherpunks, crypto anarchists. You, you guys are 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 living. You're you're living this, and uh, yeah, you're also software developers and all that good stuff. But I'm, I'm, I want to get your thoughts the thoughts on on, on uh, the Bitcoin uh, on the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space uh, in general. So, what do you think about okay. about Bitcoin cryptocurrencies? Uh, just yeah, whatever you want to say. <laughs> I was very excited about Bitcoin when it came came along. Um, I think it's a very good step in the right direction, so to speak. Um, but I also see a lot of problems. Uh, for example, the um, the privacy aspects are not perfect yet, um, and it's it's quite expensive to make transactions. They're not that fast, and the the biggest problems I actually see on the um, the connection to the, let's say, the regulated financial system, so exchanges and stuff like that. I think that's the the biggest, the weakest links we have right now in the cryptocurrency uh, space, because that's where most of the regulations happens. You know, like when when you want to get money in and out of Bitcoin, that's where um, most of the regulations happening, and this, the uh, you know know your customer rules, anti money laundering, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, that is uh, that is a, a huge, a huge vulnerability. Um, but as far as uh, you know, you know, obviously, a lot of people want uh, you know mass adoption with Bitcoin, and uh, for that to happen, I mean, it's it's going to happen through the exchanges, right? I mean, it, we're, I mean, there's there's no way to get everyone everyone on it on you know a decentralized exchange, especially especially at this time. It's just yeah, it's, it's yeah. I, so you're, you're, that's cer- certainly a hurdle. Certainly, uh, certainly a hurdle. Um, as far as uh, the pri- you mentioned some some problems with Bitcoin privacy. Sure, yeah, I, 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 that's cer- certainly the case. But uh, what do you think about uh, things like Wasabi and Samurai and um, you know some of these some of these privacy tools that are that are coming out for Bitcoin? Do you think uh, they're they're sol- Do you think the the problems uh, you know somewhat solved now? Uh, where where are we in that process? I think things improved a lot with uh, the the two you mentioned that that helped a lot, um, but it's still far away from the uh, theoretical maximum you can achieve in terms of anonymity. Sure, sure. Because you still have these, um, you know, coin joins, these sets of transactions where you uh, that you use to mix. It's not that every coin or every UTXO is indistinguishable from, indistinguishable from every other. That's what what we're trying in uh, in Script is to. Um, have like real anonymous cash and it's i think it's probably not doable with the blockchain we tried for a long time to kind of build that concept of um blind cash into into blockchains um to come up with a design that does that but i don't think that's that's possible so um that's we kind of where we kind of got back to a different approach Gotcha, gotcha, and and yes, we'll certainly get to script cash. But I, I, I do just I have a couple other questions that, that just that came to mind there. Um, so, so do you think there's sure. uh, um, so so as far as um, gosh, where where do I want to go with this? So, so yeah, as, as far as uh, as far as Bitcoin, do you do you still see it uh, as as being as being valuable as serving some sort of purpose towards uh, towards maybe uh, maybe not crypto anarchist ends, but maybe you know general anarchist ends? Do you think it's a so do you think it's um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I know. I know. Oh, yeah, I, know I know. Smuggler course, expressed some course, some concern yeah. about the mutability of the blockchain. Like it's it's there forever. Um. So so, what what do you think? Well, I think it definitely serves the purpose, and it's um, very helpful that we have it. It's better than not having it. It's just uh, it's it's just that it's not enough yet. Sure. Um. And yeah. Okay. Very good. I mean, so. it's already great that you that you can to some extent, you know, take money out of the hands of the state by 
putting it in, in Bitcoin and having it in a form that you can also uh, send to other people over the internet. I mean, you can already, let's say, um, take money out by putting, keeping it in cash or keeping gold coins, but um, Bitcoin kind of was one of the first systems that were totally separate and still allowed you to send money over the internet. And I think that's still a very um, useful case for Bitcoin, definitely. And with these um, new anonymizers, also privacy improved a lot. But like I said, there's also a lot to be... Uh, that can be improved, you know, like transaction costs, transaction speeds. Right. And the, the price stability, is, I think, is also a big problem for, for commerce. I know it's, it's kind of um, fascinating or uh, exciting for speculators, and I totally get that, that rush when you, your Bitcoin increases tenfold, you know. But <laughs> um, it's not really good for commerce when you when you take in Bitcoin and then you have you you exposed to this huge currency risk. Yeah, yeah, that that's I, I mean I I <laughs> yeah so like I I know uh, um, the folks at uh, Parallel Society in uh, in uh, in Prague um, there there was a talk that I watched on uh, on uh, here on YouTube where they talked about running a Bitcoin business um, and how how difficult it was. Um, and and the, I guess they've been able to they've been able, they've, they've been able to figure it out up until that point at least and and obviously still still up 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 to today. But yeah, I can imagine that'd be a pretty big hurdle um, if uh, um, you know if you make two thousand dollars worth of sales in a day and then you know Bitcoin drops twenty percent. I can imagine that would uh, um, would would be a problem. Um, but uh, I'm curious, uh, I'm, I'm curious, Frank, what do you think about this idea of hyper Bitcoinization, where where uh, where Bitcoin becomes, uh, um, you know, the the default, uh, um, I guess, default medium of exchange, where it's it's not U.S. dollars anymore, it's Satoshi's. Uh, do you think do you think that's a plausible future? I don't think that's a plausible future. No, I think that's a bit too optimistic. I don't I don't really see a path there from where we are right now. It would require a lot of Bitcoin used for um, for commerce for actual payments and to me it seems like the whole narrative has changed to bitcoin is now a store of value and that for me it makes it even more unlikely to that hyper bitcoinization would happen because it's still um very few people actually using it yeah but i might be too pessimistic you know i mean i'm, I'm happy to be surprised but uh, i just don't see it see it right now right Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful, obviously I'm, I'm hopeful I'll see it in my lifetime, but yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too optimistic about things, things in general. I mean, uh, things have been going, have, things have been going downhill and towards tyranny for, for, for longer than I've been alive. And, and I, I don't see that changing anytime in the, in the near future. Um, but, uh, doesn't mean we can't, uh, we can't find, uh, find, uh, you know, personal freedom in the here and now. Um, but it uh, looks like, uh, here in chat, uh, Bruno Ray said, BISC is doing a lot to evade regulations via exchange. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with BISC. Yeah. I, I'm somewhat familiar with what they're doing. So yeah, I guess good on hyper, uh, yeah, good, good. Yeah. I like that answer for hyper Bitcoinization. Could you, I guess let's get to Scrit. Uh, could, can you tell us a little bit about Scrit? Uh, what's, uh, what's, what's Scrit Cash? Uh, well, Scrit Cash is a digital payment system um, which is based on digital bearer certificates and it's basically um, like a digital banknote which you can use to pass uh, to pay to pass around as digital cash and uh, the concept has been around forever um, basically since the 80s when David Chaum invented it and um, and it allows to do very fast very cheap transactions 
And the biggest problem always was that you have some sort of centralized mint. And with the design of, of Script, you have uh, distributed mints. So you get rid of that single point of failure, which uh, can uh, inflate money or uh, steal your, the backing. And in Script, you kind of distribute that over um, a set of mints and have a payment system where you can have very fast and cheap anonymous transactions without a central mint. The biggest the biggest difference being to uh, things like Bitcoin is that uh, you cannot just become a mint. You know, in Bitcoin, you can basically just become a miner or run a full node without asking anyone. And in Script, at least as it's currently designed, um, the other mints have to uh, take you on as a new mint because it's actually a very hard problem to have... Uh, to be able that other mints can join uh, without knowing who, who that person or that mint actually is, then you open yourself up to civil attacks. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So, so I know, I know uh, many of my listeners are, f- are familiar with Bitcoin. Um, you know, how, how, how a transaction works, you open up the wallet, you put in the address, you hit send and, uh, then it's, it, then it gets sent. Could you, could you, I guess, just walk us through how a, how a transaction, um, would look from a basic, I guess, UI perspective, uh, with Scrit? Sure. Um, so basically you, you have a so-called DBC, which is digital cash. It's, it's just a string, a short string. And you could send that DBC to another person, basically like you would give him a banknote. But things being digital, of course, mean that means that uh, now the recipient and the sender both have a copy. So, um, which is not like with physical cash, where when you give somebody a banknote, you don't have it anymore. But if you give somebody a DBC, you still have it. So um, then the recipient. In the normal case, the recipient talks to the mint and says, okay, here I have this DBC. Um, Can you tell me if it is valid? And if it is valid, can you exchange it uh, for a new DBC? And then the mint checks if this DBC is valid. That means it has not been spent before. Um, If it is, then the mint marks it as spent and gives a new DBC back to the recipient. And that leaves us with the recipient having a DBC that the sender doesn't know and the copy that the sender still has became invalid because it has been spent. That's the, the normal transaction flow when when both are both parties are online and then there are like more special types of DBCs. But that's the general flow. Was it clear or? Yeah, yeah, that, that that makes sense. I, I guess um, as far as as far as the uh, as far as the mints, though, I, I guess could could you could you speak a little more to uh, to to their role? I mean, would they be would they basically just be the bit? Would they be um, in the Bitcoin system? They just be the miners? Um, could you speak a little more to I guess to, to their role? How how do um, how do individuals sign up as mints? Uh, um, how does I guess uh, how does it prevent how do they pre- prevent double spins? Uh, could you go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, so what I just described, that was the, uh, the centralized case with just a single mint. And um, basically, the um, the mint only has two operations. It has an issue and a, and a spend. Um, so an issue means it just creates money. It signs a DBC. And a spend means it takes a DBC that is uh, unspent un- un- and puts it in a so-called spent book and records that it has been spent. So that's the the main data structure of the DBC, uh, sorry, of the mint is the spent book where the mint records all spent DBCs. 
and it has a signing key and that's what it uses to issue DBCs. That's basically all. So there is no, there's no mining or something like that. Um, so like okay. in the case I described, uh, the DBC comes in, man checks if it is unspent, puts it in a spent book, creates a new DBC by signing it. And that's, that's the whole operation. And then you can uh, distribute that case over multiple mints. That means when you when you have a DBC, that it's not just signed by one mint, but it is signed by a quorum of mints. And in order to be valid, you have um, DBC needs enough signatures. Um, and then there's also the other question of, do you want to have a backing or do you want to have no backing? So... Um, because like a single mint, you can just create DBCs, you can just sign them. But if you if you want to have a backing, then you have to kind of match the what do you have in your backing, let's say your gold or your Bitcoin with how many DBCs are in circulation. Okay, so it can, it can, it can involve that too. Okay, interesting, interesting. So um, I, I guess could, could it, I guess could it hypothetically be backed by Bitcoin then? Um, I mean, could, like, so, and I guess one point I want to make clear to the list, to, to, to the listeners or have you, um, you know, explica- explicate is that there's, there's no blockchain here. Um, there's no, yeah, there's no, um, it's not proof of work. It's not proof of stake. It's not, it's not a cryptocurrency as, it's not a cryptocurrency as, as most people would, would, would understand that today, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's yeah none of that. It's just a, a value transfer system. Okay. Value transfer system. Okay. And you mentioned that it could be it could be backed by gold or or, or silver. I mean, um, so it, I guess it could it, it can overlap with 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 other commodities as well. Um, so gold, silver, could it possibly you know be backed by Bitcoin? I mean, is is there any role that Bitcoin could play in this system, or is there any role that script plays that could, could play for Bitcoin? Yeah, um, that's actually one of the uh, most common questions, and uh, we we put it in the in the white paper as well. Um, just to give you a bit of a background, so basically, Scrid sits on that layer above the backing and below governance. So the governance would be okay. How do we actually add new mints or remove mints? And the backing would be something like Bitcoin. And like I already said. Um, to do anything with a DBC, you need a, so a quorum of mints. So you would have a N mints, let's say uh, 15, and you would have a quorum, let's say 10. And then always, you know, at least 10 mints have to sign a DBC in, all for, in order for it to be valid. And you could uh, use a backing uh, with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies and actually map that uh, to a multi-signature address. And then each mint would have um, one signing key and then basically you do multi-sig transactions. So the the only limit that would be there right now with Bitcoin is that uh, the multi-signature transactions are limited to an N of 15. That's the maximum number of N in Bitcoin right now. With the uh, with Schnorr signatures, that would change. Then you could have higher numbers of N. Okay, so basically you could only have uh, you could only have 15 mints, and you could only have 15 signatures. Is that what you're saying? Um, at least until exactly, until yeah. yeah, exactly. That would be the current maximum uh, for a Bitcoin-backed script. And the reason that's the maximum is because of the limitation of multi-signature addresses. Okay, gotcha, in gotcha. Bitcoin. And with, with, with Schnorr, that would be basically unlimited. Okay, okay. Makes sense. And there are other cryptocurrencies uh, where, you, where you could already do that because they already have Schnorr built in. So... Um, but with Bitcoin, it's right now it's still limited. Okay. 
But that's obviously a very, um, very interesting use case uh, to have a, a script backed by Bitcoin. That would be uh, quite interesting if, if somebody would set that up. Yeah, because then I agree. you would have you know the, the 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 backing or the store value properties of Bitcoin combined with a very fast, cheap, and anonymous payment payment system. So that's very desirable in my book. So I guess I mean it sounds like uh, you know so it, it kind of sounds like uh, um, it's it's we're talking about layer technologies like with like with Bitcoin you have Bitcoin then you have Lightning as layer two um, is that kind of how um, was, would would script would script then be like a, another layer two to Bitcoin would it be, I mean uh, I'm just just yeah, just yeah. A thought that came to mind no actually that's absolutely right you could you could consider it a layer two technology. Um, it's just not limited to Bitcoin. You could have other backings like, yeah, like like you said, cash or gold. Or you could also think of a script without any backing. Then it wouldn't really be a layer two technology. But in that case we d- discussed, it's a layer two technology for sure. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, very interesting. So, um, and and I, I'm just kind of asking the, the general questions that someone might have for 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 another cryptocurrency. Well, how how is it secured? Um, so yeah, obviously Bitcoin is miners that secure the network. Um, for for Scrit, I take it the the security of, of the overall network is provided by the mints when they um, you know check they they check the their spend books uh, against double spends. Are, are they are they kind of the security of the system? Exactly. So they the mints themselves they check. Uh, the spend books that's how they prevent uh, double spends and the whole system is designed that it would always require a quorum of mints to collude in order to uh, uh, for example create money out of thin air or to uh, do any kind of harm um, so the higher the quorum is the higher um, the security is in that sense Gotcha. And that's what, what I kind of hinted at with, with the Sybil attack. So for, let's say with the example of the NS15, MS10, that would require mmins to collude. Um, but you have to make sure that you actually, you have to kind of control who the mints are. Otherwise, you, if people could just join, you could create a majority of mints and then do harm. So that's on the on the governance layer quite a hard problem how to prevent that it's it's similar let's say to tor you know civil uh, attacks may be, basically means that the an attacker controls enough nodes in a network to um do harm and it's very hard to prevent if you can just join so for example in tor if you if you happen to get to um have a, ru- a route through Tor, which is, goes only through uh, nodes controlled by the NSA, then Tor is useless for you. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And that looks like we got, uh, yeah, for for, uh, for anyone that's uh, new, he- uh, that may be uh, new to the live stream, I'm, uh, this is uh, another episode of the Vani Podcast. I'm joined by Frank Braun. Um, and uh, going back to the chat here, um, Rob has a, a good question here um, about backing. So uh, how he asks, uh, how would someone confirm the backing in gold, for example? And how do you envision the gold, uh, envision the gold being uh, secured for the holders of the bearer notes? Uh, is it basically just the users have to trust the mints or? Yeah, it's basically, uh, it's, a t- it's a separate question to mint, uh, to Scrit. Uh, Scrit is just the payment system. Then you have to think of, okay, how do you actually um, secure the backing? And there are multiple models for that. Uh, one would be that um, you have an, uh, like an audited backing somewhere which is insured. 
and um, then you, you have like basically an auditor saying, okay, there's really that much gold in the vault, and then you have to map that to how many DBCs are in operation, uh, in circulation, sorry, um, and to make sure there are not more DBCs than there is actual gold. So, um, gotcha. It's it's a it's it's a hard problem. So, um, yeah, that that gets because down. you want to yeah. you want. You want to prevent uh, a single point of failure in the backing as well. So if you if you have one entity that holds all the gold, obviously that's the biggest problem, especially for if the state wants to take it down. You could also do like a distributed backing where every mint has some gold. But uh, like I said, you kind of have to, uh, you need auditors who actually check is the gold there. Ideally, you want to have it insured. Um, and you have to match the amount of gold to the amount of DVCs. Make sure that there's no overissuing, but the issuing also requires a quorum of mints to conclude. Gotcha, gotcha. But right now we really are just focused on building the the, the actual payment technology and not try try not to solve all the problems at, at once. Otherwise, we will never get done. Yeah, yeah. So okay, I haven't that makes... thought that much about. I haven't thought that much about how would we make the perfect gold backing. Although I really love the idea of having one. That's. I think that would be a really great backing for Squid, because you you don't really want to have a dollar backing, right? If you have, <laughs> right. Gold would give you would give you a lot of price stability without the the inflation risk of fiat. So I think that's actually the one of the best ways to do a backing. But since you're dealing with physical money, it's uh, it's it's hard to do. Yeah, that was yeah that that was the first thing that came to mind for me is yeah gold yeah gold's a lot more difficult because it requires uh, you know it's 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 there's actually something physical there uh, and it's uh, yeah it's, it's it's worth a lot so it's uh, it's hard to store and secure um, and yeah, yeah obviously go, yeah obviously the the state's known to confiscate things and <clears throat> yeah especially especially when it comes to you know monet uh, you know monetary things so we've got another question here from rob he said uh what is the main advantage of script uh, script cash compared to other cryptos um is it just speed or something else uh well the speed is much higher so you have confirmation in like a second or so final confirmation it's very cheap to operate so you don't have this like blockchain mining um process which is expensive you don't have like a huge blockchain which you can uh, which you have to store the spent books they they can be rotated because you're uh, signing keys they rotate and so that you don't have this ever-growing ledger and the biggest advantage is that you have um, the highest you have a very high anonymity because you have uh, used blind signatures so you cannot distinguish one dbc from another dbc if it's in the same denomination so basically, it's like uh, unmarked dollar bills. Gotcha, gotcha. So I, I guess a, a question that came that just that just popped in popped in my head. I guess um, does does the the architecture of Skrit, um like with with Bitcoin? Obviously, we we talked about how um, unfortunately you know the exchanges are kind of a choke point. I mean, most people most people buy on exchanges, um, and so uh, so some of Bitcoin. Um, Someone could argue is that is you know, some of it's tied into um, what I'd call the first realm banking infrastructure. Um, do you see Skrit as being more immune to to, to that sort of thing? Uh, you know, like a, say for example, in a year or two, say Skrit becomes pretty popular. Uh, is, is is architecture uh, you know constructed in such a way as to make it more more um, I guess invulnerable to that sort of thing? Uh, could you speak to that? 
I think that this doesn't have anything to do with Script itself. It's a, it's a general problem. And for Script to be uh, successful, you would need uh, ways to buy into it, ideally with cash, like uh, over-the-counter exchanges. And um, the same for Bitcoin. It's also mm -hmm. what would, would help Bitcoin a lot if more people were able to buy and sell Bitcoin for, for cash. I mean, you mentioned BISC, that's, that's going in that direction. There are also like Bitcoin ATMs and things like that. Um, and it's basically the same problem for Script and for other cryptocurrencies. Um, what I think is really important, though, is that you are able to uh, exchange cryptocurrencies with other cryptocurrencies. So um, then the, the question only becomes, okay, how do you get in and out of the whole um, cryptocurrency ecosystem? And uh, you asked earlier about Bitcoin, like what, I, what role I see in Bitcoin. I think one of the biggest advantages right now we have with Bitcoin is that it's the, the biggest cryptocurrency and it has the most infrastructure. So a lot of other technologies in the space they kind of, can kind of uh, piggyback on, I don't know if it's the right term, but, you know, um, hook up to Bitcoin mm -hmm. when, they, when they're exchangeable with it. So... Um, But the problems with interfacing with the first round, they're always the same. Right. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I, I guess the, the, the way, the way to, uh, to bypass that problem altogether is, yeah, as, as you said, I mean, you know, uh, the, the problem is going from fiat to, to Bitcoin or fiat, say, to Skrit. Um, the problem is not going from, from, from Bitcoin to Litecoin or, or Bitcoin to Skrit. Um, that's not the problem. That's, that's pretty easy to do without KYC and AML. The problem is, yeah, you know, going from from fiat to, to crypto. So the solution then is to, uh, yeah, build up that alternative economy, build up that uh, that agora, um, you know, to where, um, yeah, you don't need to go back and forth because you can just, uh, yeah, you can just, uh, yeah, spend your spend your crypto, spend your script, spend your uh, spend your Bitcoin. So yeah, I think that's that's exactly. that's, that's a solution. That's the solution because it, it's it's going to be hard. I mean, we're not going to be able to strip away, um, you know, the KYC and AML laws. Uh, the solution he has to is to build around them and make them, yeah, make them, uh, make them irrelevant. Exactly. You you kind of have to build up your parallel infrastructure. And with with Grid, we the project kind of started that we wanted like a, a payment system for our toilets in the TAZ, <laughs> and uh, then we wanted to build the ultimate shitcoin. And uh, kind of design kind of escalated from there, um, but there, yeah, the, part of the vision is okay. You you go to a to a TAZ or go to a place like Parallel, Nepolis, and Prague, and uh, you buy Skrid and with fiat, and then you're in the system and you use it to pay uh, for a toilet or for coffee or to buy something, and then then you can kind of circumvent all these KYC AML problems. Right. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So, um, got another question in chat here. It's uh, more so more so a Bitcoin question, but uh, certainly related to what we've been talking about. Uh, Bruno Ray asks: uh, the lack of fungibility of Bitcoin frightens me. Uh, do you think XMR is fulfilling the role of digital cash more so than other currencies? If XMR fills the role of what? Do you think that XMR is fulfilling the role of digital cash more so than other currencies? Well, Monero is certainly um, one of the best contenders we have right now in terms of uh, anonymous cryptocurrencies um, it's still not as anonymous as you could make it with something like Squid, like with DBCs which are way more anonymous due to blind signatures um, I 
I really like Monero because yeah, it has this improved privacy aspect, but the usability is uh, it's tough. Um, so it's very resource intensive, and um, usually w once you do a transaction, all the money from from that um, address, so to speak, is is locked until the transaction confirms. So which makes it kind of hard to do right. a lot of repeat payments. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that 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 was the, the that's the the hurdle that I I, I mean I, I used to yeah I mean I I never really cared much about uh, about about altcoins I trade I, I speculated and traded them for for like six months back in 2016, but um yeah up until I guess it was yeah, last year so last year yeah last year midway through last year uh, Monero was the only one I cared about and it was because yeah the the privacy thing but yeah you you mentioned the usability um they're they're hard forks every six months or however long they are. Um, yeah, issues with the wallets. So I, yeah, just kind of gave up on it. Gave up on Monero just from from it being super difficult to get my money out. But yeah, I mean, yeah, still, still early on in this uh, in this uh, in this thing. So I guess uh, I, I'm curious about this about this about uh, this part of his question too. Do you um, do you, are you are you uh, worried about the lack of fungibility in Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a problem. And we already talked about uh, Samurai and Wasabi. Um, improving that and i think we recently had this discussion on twitter but uh, let's let's mix all the coins make them more fungible that way um we might run into a situation that exchanges actually flag coins that have been mixed and prevent Ooh. you from from exchanging them that will that will show if uh to what extent we have a fungibility problem in bitcoin i think uh, from what i've heard it already happens when you let's say have uh, deposit money to an exchange like Coinbase from a darknet market, but it could also happen that you, when you mix coins, that they um, refuse to take them or they want more proof where you got the where you got the coins from. It's it's unclear how it will develop, but it is the way this the basic technology is built. It is problematic the fungibility in Bitcoin because you can differentiate the coins or the the UTXOs. And I, I hadn't thought about that that additional step. That's uh, that's yeah. Ex I, I knew I I know that uh, um, yeah. Like the exchanges can blacklist addresses and such, but I didn't realize that they could um, identify what's what transactions have been mixed and block those addresses as well. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's that's another interesting hurdle. That's that's kind of that's kind of trivial to do. I mean, if you have this uh, massive coin join like in Wasabi with a hundred uh, U2XOs, um, then yeah, it's it's quite easy to to um, detect it on the blockchain and when a transaction is incoming. Okay, interesting. That, that's why the response was, okay, let's let's use, pump all coins through these uh, mixers. Then they're all tainted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Okay, well that's that's another yeah another another interesting problem I hadn't uh, hadn't thought of. So for for Skrit, uh, you know we, we've talked about this a little bit, but uh, um, but in the white paper, the governance or not governance model talks about uh, code chain. So could, could could we talk a little bit about code chain and and uh, then also tie that into Skrit, uh, how it could be I guess a possible use uh, for the governance? Sure. So like I said, uh, Skrit basically has these these three layers you have the, the the backing layer which is not part of script then you have script as the actual uh, payment system and then you have the government la governance layer which is kind of on top of script which kind of has to deal with the question um, how do we add mints to a system or how do we remove them how do the mints um, coordinate 
because in script the the mints have to coordinate for example if they want to uh, create new money uh, the, the mints have to coordinate and also for yeah, adding and removing them so we've been um, thinking about that and at some point I, I realized that we could just use CodeChain for um, a first version which gives you all that functionality basically with manual interactions of the script of the mints there might be uh, better governance models or more elaborate ones where mints could you know buy in to become a mint but with grid we uh, sorry with with code chain we basically have a drop-in solution that we can just use for governance i guess then i have to explain what what uh, code chain actually is right <laughs> right um, yeah so code chain is tries to solve the problem that when you when you install software if install um, source code how can you actually trust the source code and um, so there are, there are multiple problems with that so one problem is I mean one common solution is okay you uh, you sign it people have a PGP key and they sign it right mm -hmm. um, they, so then you manually verify let's say with Wasabi yeah, you, you, ha you have it you download it and uh, on the website it says it has to be signed by this PGP key and then you verify it manually um, and the, the big problem with that approach is you have first of all I mean you have to do it manually the verification second one is you have only one signer so there is a party that you could potentially force to sign a release which has a backdoor right it's a it's a single person or a single developer holding the key and the the third problem is how do you make sure that if you have an update that everybody who downloads the update or a new version of the software actually gets the same version and everybody gets the update because let's say you find a backdoor like or a, a bug in a software, you make an update, but if you could suppress the update to certain people, that would be a problem. Or if you could give a, like a, a version with a backdoor to just uh, one person, that would also be a problem. So you want to make sure that everybody who installs your software gets the same version, gets all the updates, and you kind of want to remove this bottleneck of or this this security problem of having just one person to uh, sign a release so um uh, and basically that's that's what codechain does it gives you an, a single source of truth how you can you can find out there's a new version and you cannot really censor that everybody gets the same information you have a, an um, ability to automatically detect that and create updates and it, it is um it's a multi-party signature. It's a bit like a multi-signature address in, in Bitcoin. You have multiple um, developers signing updates and signing changes. Gotcha. And then okay. you, define, you, you define a Chrome. So uh, similar to script. So you, have, um, you need M signatures and you have N developers. And that is kind of stored in a data structure where you cannot later change anything. And you can always see, okay, what developer signed an update and enforce that there are at least, let's say, two developers having to sign an update. 
Gotcha. What's so, that so far? Yes, uh, uh, yes, that makes that makes perfect sense. So with scrits, it's the same idea. With, it's the same idea with the mints. That um, once you have a quorum, um, then they can verify that they can you know verify that verify the 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 transact the transaction without double spends. Only in this case with code chain, we're talking about uh, like for example, like let's say I let's say like I've got this this project called Darklands, which I do have this project. It's on hiatus, but um, I've got this project Darklands where, where it's it's going to be on GitLab. We we need we need something like code chain. Basically, the the, the purpose of code chain would be instead of instead of just uh, one developer signing a key um, there'd be a quorum of developers that are that are um, authenticating uh, the or I guess verifying the authenticity of, of the of the um, of whatever whatever is in question correct yeah so the it basically they, they sign off the um, the changes so it is a distributed or a multi-party uh, code review system with signatures. And once you install a software which is protected by CodeChain, it can automatically check for updates. If there is an update, it will it can download them and then can verify that uh, enough um, developers have signed the update and then just basically recompile a new version of the software. I, I didn't like go into the technical details. It's probably too much for, for the show, but that's uh, the general idea and the problems that it solves. And then we, we kind of realized, okay, that maps very well to the problem we have in in script mm -hmm. so how do we coordinate uh, a set of n mints where m of them have to agree and basically we just map the n mints to n signers in codechain and then we create a codechain repository which is kind of like the it doesn't there's one repository for the um, script code but there's another one for the actual script currency so to speak and for that repository every mint has a signing key and if they let's say if they want to add a new mint they just you know change the configuration file and then at least m of these mints have to sign the code chain with the configuration and once enough of them signed the uh, configuration can safely be updated and you just added a new mint Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That that makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I've read. Uh, yeah. Pr actually, printed out and read the read the white paper, and it, it was it was it was pretty clear. Um. I, I will say it was pretty clear. But um. I I have a hard time. I'm not I'm not a programmer developer. I'm not uh, super proficient and and uh, you know math equations and and, and the like. So like uh, I I have a hard time. I guess grasping the entire the entire architecture. But yeah. That's this is has certainly helped. And I and I will drop a link. Um. And definitely in the show notes of the podcast when it's released. Um. But uh, I will drop a link to uh, the script white paper uh, there in the show notes as well and uh, yeah I do recommend uh, do recommend reading it so um, so we've got script cash and, uh, and and code chain I mean uh, so we've got the I know we've, we've got the white paper for script cash when when we'll be able to use that um, I mean when, when will there be I guess an alpha or beta release or something along those lines well we we hope to get a prototype of the script system running and first quarter of next year but uh, since it's kind of like our side project uh, it depends how, how quickly we, we get along but uh, uh, as, sure. as quickly as possible so sure. we we kind of adopted this open development process so that we put out the white paper draft and we will put out all the code we, we develop so people can uh, comment on it and see what's happening but uh, it's it's a right at this stage it's a private side project so we don't have any funding or some ico planned or stuff like that so <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell when it's be done you know okay but, uh, 
Very good. And, yeah. and what about what about code chain? Is that um, is the, is the could could that be used right now? Is it ready to go? It's basically ready to go. Yeah, I have to add one more feature, but um, it's very immature. Okay, very. Which cool. is why we why we kind of realize okay, uh, we want to use that for for Scrid then because then we have a working governance solution which works for the first version without us having to write any other code. So it, it kind of ended up being a nice it's a nice abstraction that kind of fits well together so uh, i was very happy when i realized that because that meant that we we created the right abstraction in code chain because it was so easily reusable right and i, I mean it, it you, you had to work on code chain anyway it's uh, um you had to work on code yeah you had to work on code chain anyway so if it was part of script then you had even more of a reason to work on it uh, get it done so yeah um, <laughs> makes makes sense makes sense uh so i guess was there was there anything else you wanted to mention in regards to script cache or uh or code chain i uh, got a couple of listener questions i want to i want to work in if uh, if you've got more time i don't have anything to add hit me up with, uh, with the questions okay okay very good so i will start with uh um there's a question from jadaniel richer uh on twitter he's he asks uh, how can someone make the transition from running around with their real name uh to using a nim so i guess they yeah, the transition from um from a from a given name to a, to a pseudonym, I would just, I mean, you just start over. You just <laughs> create a new and go from there. Or does he mean in like in phys- in real life? Or? Yeah, I, I think he's. I think I think he's uh, talking more so like uh, um, like yeah, probably physical physical space and time going from from yeah first realm to second realm. But yeah, that's uh, that's I, I guess yeah that that's probably that's probably more so what he what he was uh, what he was getting at. Uh, but yeah, as far as synonyms, you just kind of uh, you just create new synonyms whenever you whenever you need them, right? Whenever you want one, that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I mean, there's no no uh, limit on the number of pseudonyms you can use, but it's uh, it takes some practice to separate them well. So for um, for the online world, um, it's very helpful if you actually set up a different machine for it. And, or at least a different like virtual machine, so you don't end up uh, mixing your nims. It, it happens very easily when you, let's say, you write an email and then suddenly you you use the wrong nim. Um, that would be my tip in that area. And for for the f- physical world, um, yeah, you you should really limit the number of nims you use because otherwise things become very complicated. But in general, it is a lot easier than people think. It's basically you just you come up with your name and then you use it. And when you meet somebody, you tell them your your name, and they don't they don't really think about if it's like a, a name or if it's your legal name or whatever it is. And even if they met you before, sometimes if you tell them a different name, they will just think, <laughs> okay, they remembered the wrong name. Right. It's, it's not that much of a big deal. It's more it's more of a psychological problem, I think, with because we're so used to you know having our name and. That we that is some sort of you know obligation that you have to always say your legal name, but you can just you know make up any name, and it's just a matter of consistently using it. Right, right, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, sounds good, sounds good. Uh, the uh, the other the another question here is from uh, Parallelly Polis. Um, it's not the one from Prague. I think it was uh, maybe a, a different uh, different location. But uh, um, anyway, it's on Twitter. Uh, but uh, how do you come to terms with being a public crypto advocate when crypto means hidden? Uh, was his was uh, was this question? Ah, okay. Well, that was was kind of hard to uh, get used to. Um, I tried to be very hidden for a long time 
and um I mean, I gave some talks, but I didn't have them recorded. I didn't do any podcast, didn't talk much on Twitter. But at some point, I I figured that I kind of want to bring the message out. And that kind of requires to be more in the public. Therefore, uh, yeah, compromise a bit. Let's Let's put it that way. Compromise a bit on being like in the hidden and... Um, that's how I how I solved the problem. So it's it's basically for for the course, so to say. And uh, I can still, I mean, I can still do things online with a different NIM if I want to. Uh, that's just my NIM I use in public, or yeah, in in public basically as a online and offline persona. And um, but I totally respect it and I totally get it when some people don't want to do that. It's just. Uh, what I wanted to do to bring the message out a bit more. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a, it's a it's it's a t- it's a tough one, right? Um, yeah, because uh, as obviously, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, the the security culture is very very important. But uh, at the same time, I mean, uh, you know, human you know, we're, we're social animals, and um, then there's also the I guess uh, the altruistic parts at least in and some of and some of us where we want to you know uh, the spread the message and all that stuff so um it's a, it's it's a it's a it's, it's a fine line right um trying to trying to determine how much how much you want to disclose versus how much uh, you how much uh, or i guess what to keep private yeah yeah it's i agree i think uh, it's something you are, you always have to uh, work on finding the right balance um but maybe let me add one thing. I think it is mm-hmm. very important that that we build like these uh, real connections, and building real connections means that you have to meet people in the physical space, mm-hmm. and um, you know build friendships and all of that. It's 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 great to be on Twitter and it's also great to be on like a live podcast. But it's also very important that you actually build relationships in the physical realm with people you meet regularly and uh, can talk to. And that's sometimes kind of hard to um, to find like-minded people if you're completely hidden, right? Um, it kind of requires that you go to, a, like, let's say, a TAZ or to a conference and actually meet people. You can, you can still, you know, be private, but you kind of have to expose yourself a little bit in order to to connect and um, also in order to build like free, uh, spaces of more freedom you can we cannot build them alone so right. it kind of requires that you you go out if you want to do that right yeah yeah and that's uh um yeah and that's that's one that's one thing i loved uh, coming across uh coming across uh, you know the second realm content was um that bit that had been my focus for for like a year and a half or two years um before that point was how do we increase our personal freedom in the here and now in physical space and time and um yeah i love uh your emphasis and 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 uh you know just the the, the second realm emphasis on not only uh you know having these protected spaces in and and in, in digital space but also in physical space and time um and because uh, i mean that's that's it's crucially important um you know life's life's too short to to, to be a slave and it's uh um yeah i mean it's it's uh some some folks like uh like rayo um the uh the founder of vanu he he really did like his isolation um but for for uh for a lot of people um you know there there is that uh, that inclination to to work with others others and there's there's also the economic advantage of division of labor and things of that nature so um i mean uh just yeah it makes sense and yeah i like that emphasis on the physical 
Sure. And um, then we just have to figure out basically how can we um, solve that dilemma? You know, how can we meet in the physical realm and still maintain privacy? And that's what Second Realm is, is uh, a lot about to, to solve these problems. You know, create physical spaces which are still unobservable and where you cannot attribute actions. Right. But we have to solve that problem. We cannot just stay um, in, the, in the virtual realm. Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, totally with you, totally with you. So uh, the, the last question I have for you um, is from CoinShare, and there's, uh, um, it, was a, it was a couple of few tweets. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll read it. I'll read it in its entirety here. Um, so he says, uh, being a privacy extremist to the extent you practice is somewhere between log uh, logistically extremely inconvenient and impossible for most of the population, especially as more infrastructure and semi-infrastructure, such as the phone app you use to communicate with your mother, become, uh, become reliant on biometrics or KYC. How would you or others articulate the gray area between complete ignorance and perfect OPSEC? And what are some overarching principles to help gradually navigate from an interested noob to someone taking meaningful action that benefits themselves and others? I guess I can, I can, I can break, yeah, break, first I can of break all, up that question, break it up into individual questions here for you. So his first one was, um, how would you or others articulate the gray area between complete ignorance and perfect OPSEC? So the, I guess the, the fine line between privacy and, and also... Um, yeah, complete ignorance. Well, I think there are like a few general principles uh, you can apply there. And one of them is, we already touched on it, is like compartmentalization. And uh, like what I mentioned, you can create different NIMS and uh, you have separate computers for them. And um, that also kind of translates into the, the physical space. Uh, he's totally right that it's uh, becoming more and more it's becoming harder and harder to maintain privacy. And that also means it becomes very expensive, not just in terms of money, but also in terms of time, which kind of translates to money, but it may, because it makes you more inefficient. And uh, one way to deal with that is that you kind of have to choose in what areas you want to maintain high privacy and in what areas you don't want to maintain that because it's too costly. For example, when you're calling your mom um, or your grandmother, you're probably not going to talk about anything very sensitive. So it's not necessarily um, necessary that you have this extreme privacy stand, stance when you call her. Um, and in other areas, it's a different situation. So I think that is something to keep in mind. And uh, to get started... Um, I think it already helps a lot when you when you kind of go through the world with that mindset of what you know. Okay, what data is collected here? How could this can this be tied to to you? Um, usually, a lot of a lot of data collection is, is tied to uh, identifiers. For example, yeah, phone numbers, email addresses, uh, of course, your your legal name. And just, you know, kind of start with that open mind. Okay, how is the data collected and how could I get around, could I get around this and get in the habit of use the low hanging fruit, you know, for example, pay with, I mean, it's so obvious, but pay with cash instead of credit card when you can, every time you can get used to that, you know, things like, okay, you the, uh, public transport tickets, go for the, the one that is anonymous, don't go for the one that ties your name to it. Um, stuff, but it kind of it kind of actually brings it back to to Squid a little bit, which is uh, 
part of our vision for Squid is not just to to have um, human to human payments, but I think what we need in the future a lot is human to machine payments, and we can see that already that this area is is very um, problematic in, in from a privacy perspective because a lot of these services you simply cannot use without giving them all your data. You know, for example, let's say Uber. You, it's, it's, ve it's very, very hard to use Uber without giving up personal information. And one of the reasons is that the payment system is not anonymous. Once you yeah. have an anonymous payment system, you could um, use it anonymously. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, I guess there, there are a couple things that came to mind there. Um, you, you were mentioning how just kind of being in, just I guess the, the first thing is just being in that mindset, um, just just thinking like I guess just being conscious, uh, you know, you know, conscious of 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 all of the way that your data is constantly um you know being exploited um that alone like uh before you before like uh, i know like especially in the past year i've thought about that with basically everything that i do is well uh you know how how is uh, like uh how how could my data be used here how could this be hacked uh you know um questions you know, questions i wouldn't wouldn't normally ask myself i guess a few years back so yeah i, th I think you're right yeah. that ju just being in that mindset and being conscious of the fact that um yeah every company out there is is going to sell my data you know, like uh, like it, it, my data is very vulnerable i have to, I have to start protecting it um, so yeah, I think just, yeah. just being in that mindset is super important. And often like consider things public when you, when you say them in public or when you, when you, uh, when you use uh, software that isn't like highly protective of your data, which is, that's kind of like why I, um, why I prefer Twitter over Facebook because, uh, you know, Facebook has all these privacy settings and that's complete bullshit. You should consider everything on, on Facebook public and, um, so with Twitter, that it's a little bit clearer that it's all public. Sure. Of course, you should also consider all the private messages public. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, um, yeah. Basically, if it if it's connected to the internet, um, you know, if it's connected to the internet, just uh, you know, assume assume the worst. As as if it's it's, it's it seems to be best best practice. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's uh, the, good software. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that everything is. Um, public right i mean let's say sure well, yeah, yeah of course of um, course yeah but yeah that, that generally is a good rule of thumb i think to consider these things public yeah sure sure so i guess another thing that that came to mind just as as, as you're as as you're talking about uh pseudonyms and compartmentalization i i, I brought this up to smuggler but i'd like to get your thoughts on it too um but i guess i, I used to have this conception of uh you know, of like the of, of, of uh you know the second realm lifestyle as well i guess yeah it's, it's kind of a lifestyle yeah my, my conception was that um you know hardcore hardcore second realmers uh only exist in the second realm like they don't have any um vestiges of their first realm lives um but it's seems like after talking to, to to smuggler and and kind of you know maybe getting just a better a better feel feel for this um it seems like um that um seems like there's there's uh for obviously depending on the depending on the individual there's more overlap than others but um it seems like uh seems like the it seems like there's a lot of interaction between both realms um just by virtue of existing uh yeah they definitely overlap i think and um it would be, I think it would be, ex it is extremely expensive when you try to be 100% in the second realm right now. I mean, hopefully if, if our strategy is successful, that price will, will, will go down because we will have these um, spaces where we can have privacy more easily. But right now the price is extremely high and it's only getting higher. 
So, um, I, I that's also I think a good a good um, mindset to think about. Let's let, you know think about okay, you you like a criminal who wants to flee the country. You know, some somebody's after you. Uh, just try thinking how how you would live, how you would uh, transact business, how you would um, travel. And it quickly becomes apparent that it's extremely hard these days. Right. That, also, that makes it extremely expensive. Yeah, that's yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you kind of, if you if you want to have any sort of effectiveness in building, you know, more freedom, you kind of have to also maintain like this first realm identity and do business in that area. I think there's. Um, there's no way around that right now. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree. Uh, certainly agree. So uh, I've got another question in chat here from Rob. Um, he asks, uh, how do you screen new members and avoid infiltration, um, I guess, of temporary autonomous zones from potential enemies and bludgies uh, and others? Uh, and I, this is a great question. I, I'd, I'd love to get, especially folks that, uh, like you and Smuggler, that are super focused on security. Um, I guess, yeah, vetting question. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you screen, new, how do you vet new members and uh, prevent infiltration from enemies? some some strategies that uh, that you employ um that's a very good question um problem is in order to maintain good obsec i cannot give you the details <laughs> because that would be a bad obsec um but i can give you some uh some general principles um first of all that if you if you kind of build this alternative structure organization the same principle of compartmentalization applies it doesn't mean that if you have a group of people building something uh, that every member of that group has to know everything you know it's also there there's this principle of need to know so it's some technique to uh, limit the amount of damage somebody could do um what I find helpful is to generally, when you meet people, kind of see, do they have some sort of history? And does that history check out? So, and also ask friends, you know, people who know that person already, you can ask them about, about that person if they really know them for long. And um, and I would also, you know, listen to, to my gut feeling. That's, I think, very important as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Let me uh take a look back at chat here and see if there's uh any any other questions. Um, Maybe one one more thing to add is sure, go um ahead. you kind of you kind of have to build um a trust kind of grows over time and is destroyed in an instant. So um kind of you kind of you know what i mean like you 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 takes a lot of transaction with somebody and interactions and listening and talking to him to get to go to a high trust level right and it just takes one um one fraud one theft one big lie for trust to be destroyed and i think there there's just no way around that you know um which is also important to understand for yourself that it's uh, if you want to build these kind of relationships you have to uh, be honest with your peers and uh, keep your agreements 
Yeah. Because that's how they build trust in you and you can really easily destroy that trust. And, uh, and if you really destroy that trust, then there's no way of ever um, rebuilding it. At least that's how I see it. You know, if somebody really, um, let's say if, if a friend of mine would steal from me, then it would not be my friend anymore. And there's no real, he cannot really solve that problem. Uh, right. Make, make up for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, the important, the importance of reputation. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I guess, and yeah, how easy it is to yeah disappear. Um, but yeah, Rob is, uh, uh, got a couple more, a uh, couple more comments here. He says, we are a small group of people building something similar to an autonomous zone. And the offset question is our biggest problem because we want to open up to outsiders eventually. So yeah, he said, uh, we're considering personality tests, lie detector tests, and other means. Uh, do you have any experience with using any of those things, uh, that you'd like to disclose? Of course. Um, I no, I don't really have experience with that, and we never used any lie detectors. I think I don't think I would use them. Uh, I have a <laughs> I have a kind of like personal interest in personality tests because I find them very interesting, and always want to you uh, know the Myers Briggs type of people I talk to. Um, but I don't think that's really uh, something you can use to screen people. Um, no. I'm... Okay. No. Okay. Very good. Very good. So uh, the answer- I, I think it's more, it, it's a lot about um, is somebody philosophically a fit, and I think you can you can kind of see that over time if uh, if the person is honest in that sense, you know. Yeah. Let's say if you if you are if if liberty is really something you care about in your life that kind of shows and it's kind of hard to fake for a very long time so um especially being emotional about things like that so right yeah i've i've found uh just yeah in my i mean granted it's most it's yeah it's been in the alternative media and, and you know content creation and podcasting but um but yeah i mean it's it's pretty easy to tell who's serious right um who's serious about freedom and and, and who's not um so yeah i mean yeah I'm, i i agree I think you can see that as well. Um, you can see that a bit as, an, as a case study, for example, in the cryptocurrency area. In, with Bitcoin in the early days, there was a lot of people who were in it for good reasons, you know, for uh, to get rid of fiat money or to create private uh, private payment system, you know, a lot of good reasons. And you could actually, you can usually, you could tell that they were honest about it. You know, I'm not, I don't agree with every strategy or every technology that has been developed. And, uh, but most of the people in the early days, they were honest. And then later there was a lot of people coming onto the scene that were just in it for the money or for fame. And you can, you can usually tell that very easily. And I think it's the same when you're trying to build a group that, um, you can kind of feel that and see that if somebody is actually interested and honest about liberty and uh, building an alternative, or if it's somebody for for whom it is just a hype or maybe it's an agent, it's really hard to maintain that over a long time. And and actually, this whole surveillance society um, makes it also a lot harder for the other side because where do you get a get an informant from who does not have a huge history in, uh, of social media 
usage. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, you, whatever, you study uh, law or you're like become a policeman or something like that. And then later you want to become an informant. How do you erase that history of yourself and create this 100% alternative history? That's really hard. Yeah. So, yeah. I think there was, yeah, one, one guy who asked a question, he has it on his, on his Twitter that he's an ex-cop. An ex and that's that's the only way how to deal with it in an honest way, right? That that actually gives him credibility that he says as an ex-cop. Because if you wouldn't say that, then um, it's uh, it's very hard to hide that fact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's it's much better if he says, "Yeah, I'm an, I'm an ex-cop and I I regret my past." Um, yeah, that's better than trying to hide it. Um, uh, so so Rob dropped a dropped a message in uh, another message here, and uh, um, it's not not a question, but I, I'll I'll read it and just open it up to you. Um, for, for comments. Uh, he says, uh, uh, yes, but if you don't have your uh, advantage mobility to move in a worst case scenario, it is hard because the risk is so high to lose it all. If you get infiltrated by the wrong person, it really only takes one bad reporter, for example. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the tough thing about, uh, you know, building physical temporary autonomous zones, right? Is that, um, you know, there, there is always that small risk of, of infiltration. Yeah, sure. But it's also, the question is, what are you actually doing there? You know, and there are, there are like different levels of crime, so to say. You know, sure. If, and depends. It's really it really depends a lot on where you are and what jurisdiction you are, uh, how the how the um, authorities act there, what you're actually doing. You know, do you sell Bitcoin for cash and then sell coffee and don't report the ta the taxes, or are you running a math lab? That that's a very different thing. Mm -hmm. So. It, it's kind of you cannot like uh, generalize the answer there i think um right to right. how to maintain uh, security and obsec in these situations sure yeah yeah it's uh it's tough yeah cer certainly uh certainly a tough field certainly a tough field um but i don't see any other uh, any other questions in chat uh it's been about uh, an hour coming up on an hour and a half so i guess we, we can uh, begin to close out here so uh uh what's uh um do you have any any closing thoughts for the listeners on uh yeah what we talked about today crypto anarchy second realms uh any general closing thoughts for the listeners no i think like like i said it, it's very important to to ask yourself um how can you create um, more freedom for yourself and for the people that are close to you? I think that's a very important principle. Um, it's uh, I think often people try to to build like these large solutions that solve everything, and uh, it's great to to aspire to do that. But I think there's also a lot of things we can improve and gain by trying to build like local solutions and start in our direct environment. And maybe that's my my call to action in that area. You know, try to improve your local community and uh, your, your local relationships. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect way to end. Per perfect way to end. That's uh, exactly what we advocate uh, here on the on the Volney podcast. Is uh, yeah, uh, you know. Individual, yeah, yeah, you know, radical lifestyle changes in pursuance of freedom. Um, so that's uh, that's uh, that's the idea. Um, well, Frank, it's been it's been uh, it's been a pleasure, man. Um, great conversation. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, just taking one more look at chat to make sure I didn't miss anything. Nope, uh, we're good. Appreciate you coming on, man. Oh, if people want to to keep up with your work, uh, where where uh, where should they go? I'm on 
basically all my links on frankbraun.org. That's B-R-A-U-N, so the German spelling. I'm also on Twitter uh, at the Frank Braun. And yeah, I guess you, you're going to link to the stuff anyway. Um, I also want to thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. And I really appreciate your work. And keep doing what you're doing, man. Hey. Hey, I appreciate that, Frank. I I really do, um, and uh, and you guys do too. I mean, I I I've, I I said this to Smuggler, but when I came across uh, Interplex.net and came across the Second Realm content um, and hashtag Agora, I mean, that was uh, like it was it was it was huge. Uh, it was very very important. Um, put out uh, like a, I remember even remember I think it was a fifteen sixteen part series um, on on a build it called Building the Second Realm on the other uh, podcast I used to do. Um, so I mean, all, all this all the stuff that you guys are doing is is super super important. And I'm doing as much as I can to to, to get the the strategy of building second realms, building Tazes, um, trying to do doing as much as I can to to, to push it out there, uh, to get people out of political crusading and get people out of these uh, out of these these strategies that will lead to, to to nowhere but wasted time, effort, or or even uh, or even uh, counterproductive in, in terms of politics. So um, I appreciate uh, you know all the work that that uh, that, that you do, and uh, yeah, please keep doing it. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Glad to hear that that it uh, had some impact i um i remember smuggler telling me that he found your uh your 16 part series on the internet and <laughs> had no idea who you were so it's it kind of showed me that uh, sometimes it's good to put out content and you never know who will find it and who who can resonate with it so indeed yeah indeed well frank thanks a lot man i'd love, love to have you back on in the future sure absolutely it was a pleasure all right. Thanks, Frank. Uh, you, have, you have a good one. So, um, all right, guys, that's, uh, that's all I have for you today. Uh, big thanks to Frank for coming on the show, and uh, thank you for tuning in. I uh, sure hope you found the discussion as valuable as I did. Uh, I mean, yeah, Frank, Smuggler, those uh, those, those uh, hardcore crypto-anarchists, cypherpunks that are out, out there doing shit, out there doing real shit, like really, really important stuff. So, yeah, hope, hopefully you found it valuable. And, yeah, of course, uh, yep, share the podcast around. Uh, you share the live stream. Uh, well, the live stream's over, but yeah, share, share the link to, 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 to watch around. Uh, make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher. We, uh, we sure do appreciate it. Uh, and I think that's all I have for you. Until next time, let's build the Agora, and uh, let's build second rounds.